This is The Cash Flush, a programmer's audio scrapbook, recorded May 8th, 2023. I'm Avdi Grimm, and today I have a selection from the introduction to Computer Power and Human Reason, From Judgment to Calculation, by Joseph Weizenbaum. Most other programs could not vividly demonstrate the information processing power of a computer to visitors who did not already have some specialized knowledge, say, of some branch of mathematics. Doctor, on the other hand, could be appreciated on some level by anyone. Its power as a demonstration vehicle was further enhanced by the fact that the visitor could actually participate in its operation. Soon, copies of Doctor, constructed on the basis of my published description of it, began appearing at other institutions in the United States. The program became nationally known, and even, in certain circles, a national plaything. The shocks I experienced as Doctor became widely known and played were due principally to three distinct events. One, a number of practicing psychiatrists seriously believed the Doctor computer program could grow into a nearly completely automatic form of psychotherapy. Colby et al. write, for example, Further work must be done before the program will be ready for clinical use. If the method proves beneficial, then it would provide a therapeutic tool which can be made widely available to mental hospitals and psychiatric centers suffering a shortage of therapists. Because of the time-sharing capabilities of modern and future computers, several hundred patients an hour could be handled by a computer system designed for this purpose. The human therapist involved in the design and operation of this system would not be replaced, but would become a much more efficient man since his efforts would no longer be limited to the one-to-one patient-therapist ratio as now exists. I had thought it essential as a prerequisite to the very possibility that one person might help another learn to cope with his emotional problems, that the helper himself participate in the other's experience of those problems and, in large part by way of his own empathetic recognition of them, himself come to understand them. There are undoubtedly many techniques to facilitate the therapist's imaginative projection into the patient's inner life. But that it was possible for even one practicing psychiatrist to advocate that this crucial component of the therapeutic process be entirely supplanted by pure technique, that I had not imagined. What must a psychiatrist who makes such a suggestion think he is doing while treating a patient that he can view the simplest mechanical parody of a single interviewing technique as having captured anything of the essence of a human encounter. Perhaps Colby et al. give us the required clue when they write, A human therapist can be viewed as an information processor and decision-maker with a set of decision rules which are closely linked to short-range and long-range goals. He is guided in these decisions by rough empiric rules, telling him what is appropriate to say and not to say in certain contexts. To incorporate these processes to the degree possessed by a human therapist in the program would be a considerable undertaking, but we are attempting to move in this direction. What can the psychiatrist's image of his patient be when he sees himself as therapist, not as an engaged human being acting as a healer, but as an information processor following rules, etc.? Such questions were my awakening to what Polanyi had earlier called a scientific outlook that appeared to have produced a mechanical conception of man. Two, I was startled to see how quickly and how very deeply people conversing with doctor became emotionally involved with the computer, and how unequivocally they anthropomorphized it. 
Once, my secretary, who had watched me work on the program for many months and therefore surely knew it to be merely a computer program, started conversing with it. After only a few interchanges with it, she asked me to leave the room. Another time, I suggested I might rig the system so that I could examine all conversations anyone had had with it, say, overnight. I was promptly bombarded with accusations that what I proposed amounted to spying on people's most intimate thoughts, clear evidence that people were conversing with the computer as if it were a person who could be appropriately and usefully addressed in intimate terms. I knew, of course, that people form all sorts of emotional bonds to machines, for example, to musical instruments, motorcycles, and cars, and I knew from long experience that the strong emotional ties many programmers have to their computers are often formed after only short exposures to their machines. What I had not realized is that extremely short exposures to a relatively simple computer program could induce powerful delusional thinking in quite normal people. This insight led me to attach new importance to questions of the relationship between the individual and the computer, and hence to resolve to think about them. 3. Another widespread, and to me surprising, reaction to the ELISA program was the spread of a belief that it demonstrated a general solution to the problem of computer understanding of natural language. In my paper, I had tried to say that no general solution to that problem was possible, i.e. that language is understood only in contextual frameworks, that even these can be shared by people to only a limited extent, and that consequently even people are not embodiments of any such general solution. But these conclusions were often ignored. In any case, ELISA was such a small and simple step. Its contribution was, if any at all, only to vividly underline what many others had long ago discovered, namely, the importance of context to language understanding. The subsequent much more elegant and surely more important work of Winograd in computer comprehension of English is currently being misinterpreted just as Eliza was. The reaction to Eliza showed me more vividly than anything I had seen hitherto the enormously exaggerated attributions an even well-educated audience is capable of making, even strives to make, to a technology it does not understand. If, as appeared to be the case, the public's attributions are wildly misconceived, then public decisions are bound to be misguided and often wrong. Difficult questions arise out of these observations. What, for example, are the scientist's responsibilities with respect to making his work public? And to whom or what is the scientist responsible? Again, that was a selection from the introduction to Computer Power and Human Reason, From Judgment to Calculation by Joseph Weizenbaum, published in 1976. And that's what was in the cache today. If you enjoy this show, it is brought to you by Graceful Dev. That's graceful.dev, a garden of developer training, where you can get two weeks free by using the code CACHFLUSH, all caps, all one word. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to flush. <laughs> <laughs>